Trees evoke great memories, I think. Now, our trees around us here are pretty bleak right now, but we know uh, in just a little while, buds will appear and the beauty of spring will be on us. I remember growing up, having a yard filled with pine trees. I loved climbing those trees and spying on my neighbors and watching my mom hang laundry out, uh, thinking she had no clue where I was. Of course, she knew exactly where I was. Um, I, I think of that tree that was standing guard next to that old, old ice cellar in the uh, farmyard of my aunt and uncle's outside Richmond, Kentucky. I still remember it vividly. It always struck me. I remember, I remember trees different places we'd go in the woods and carry our lunches as a little boy and how we'd hide and, and, uh, and build all kinds of, or try to, try to build certain tree houses and trees. They, they look pretty sad when we, and after our attempts. And then on our pilgrimage that Diana and I took a few years ago, I'll never forget the tree there, the olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane. We were given about 30 minutes or so to sit and reflect, and I remember weeping there, asking God to forgive me for all the times I made the gospel boring, the word of God lifeless. I promised him I would, I would never be guilty of that again, a promise I fail I have not lived up to. The scene in this garden is a gripping one. Jesus is overwhelmed by what lay before him. He is wrestling with what God has called him to do. There's a forsakenness that he begins to experience here in this scene before he actually is crucified. Here's our text in Matthew 26, beginning with verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching. You did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. There were several people near that scene that night in the garden, the night that Jesus was arrested, and watching Jesus engage with them or recognizing their presence teaches us again about the enormity of the grace of God, its impactful nature when we come near this King of kings and this Lord of lords. It prepares us for what we shall celebrate two weeks from today. And so, take a look at these people. First, we have Judas. Judas' name is forever associated with treachery and bribery. Now, I met a dog once by the name of Judas, 
And I heard of a goat by the name of Judas, but I have never met a baby boy by the name of Judas. We don't do that. Thousands of songs, thousands upon thousands of songs have been written about Jesus, but not about Judas. Lady Gaga, however, has one line about him. She sings, Jesus is my virtue, but Judas is the demon I cling to. The text says, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going up to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. If we were to take a survey of the greatest sinner ever, would Judas be on your top list? Probably. You might say, Judas is the worst sinner of all because of his action and what he did. Some see him that way. On Easter Sunday, Tim Rice's Jesus Christ Superstar will be shown live. In it, Rice has chosen to to, uh, present Judas as a complex, uh, tormented man who was uh, just confused in his actions and misled. Perhaps neither are right, those views. There's a Jewish scholar by the name of uh, Moses Aberbach, and he, he tells us that in Jesus' day, for any disciple of any mentor to approach your mentor first and greet them was dishonoring thing to do. That disciples were never to do that. It was a way by which the disciple said to the mentor, I'm an equal with you. So when Judas did this, it was not just just a betrayal, but it was a full repudiation of anything Jesus is claiming to be as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. He is forfeiting his future. So what Judas did, perhaps made him the worst person on earth, or maybe not. Maybe he's not the worst person, because, and I say it because of what we learned from the other disciples. Just a few hours earlier, they were at this last meal together, enjoying Jesus' fellowship. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And none of them said, oh, not me, probably that guy. None of them said that. They said, is it I? Would I be the one? You see, it's not till we are truly able to say that, it could be me, that we see truly our weakness and our frailty, how easy it is to sell Jesus out, because that's what Judas did. He sold Jesus out. Now, we know that Judas got 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus. When I say he sells Jesus, what what do I mean by that? Well, if you own stock, you keep an eye on the stock. Now, you expect the stock market to go all over the page, and the conventional wisdom, of course, is you don't sell stock when it starts going down. You just hold on to it, and eventually it's going to do well, but not every single time. After all, Toys R Us are going out, right? It happens, and sometimes you choose to sell. If it's not paying off, it's not profitable to you. Judas's stock in Jesus was not going his way. It was going down. He expected a different kind of Messiah, a different kind of Savior, and so he sold. Now, what's that mean to us? When you're selling Jesus, you sell him out when you prayed and prayed and prayed, and the answers to prayer didn't come like you had hoped. Selling out Jesus 
is when you serve and serve and serve, and it seems like nothing in life is panning out. In other words, it's not paying off. You're not any happier for obeying Jesus than disobeying Jesus, and so you, you sell him out. You go your own way. Now, that's what it means to sell out Jesus, to be very sporadic in faithfulness and obedience. It depends on the circumstances of life. And such is the life that God warns us about living. Serving Jesus means that we are a source of His pleasure where He reigns. That our obedience, our surrender, our service, our love, our worship, our sacrifice brings Him delight. That's what we care about most when we understand what He's done for us. Now, serving Him or selling Him, that's what it comes down to. A perfect illustration of this is Job. When, when God says to Satan, there's nobody like my, my, like my man Job, and Satan says, you must be joking in so many words. He says, does Job serve you for nothing? He looks at all the wealth of Job and all the kids he has, everything at his disposal, and Satan says, well, of course he serves you. Look at what he has. And so that's why God strips Job of everything, to show Satan wrong that Job was in no matter what, and he was to the very end. That's what he calls us to, friends. That's what God calls us to, a faith in a life that no matter what, no matter what my life looks like, no matter what you go through, no matter how deep your pain, no matter what your challenge is, that you're in for the long run. Lord, is it me? Could I be the one? that betrays you? Absolutely, I could be. And that's why we have to guard our hearts. That's why we're together every week. That's why we keep encouraging each other as we, long as we see the day approaching. You see, you can have an association with Jesus. You can have even a participation with Him like Judas and never really be marked by Him, saved by Him. That's the scary thing about church life. You can be near Him. You can rub shoulders with godly people. You can find the gospel intriguing. You can find history of the Scripture very enlightening and never really know Him, never really having surrendered to Him. I trust that doesn't describe anybody here today, but it might. There can be no divided loyalties. You're either, you're either in or out. You're either selling Jesus or you're serving Jesus. Judas Judas was so near the kingdom, but he never entered. You may be near the kingdom, but that's not good enough, friends. You have to enter the kingdom. Then there's Peter. Now, Matthew doesn't identify him, but the other gospel writers do as the one who drew his sword. The mob arrived, and Peter didn't understand what was about to happen. Maybe, maybe if he had spent his time in prayer instead of falling asleep, he'd have been better prepared. But he drew his sword to slash away at Malchus. Now, Malchus isn't identified in our text either, but John identifies him as the servant who comes to arrest Jesus. Peter slashes away, probably meaning to split his skull, mouth, and cuss, and didn't. Instead, got his ear instead. This was a fisherman, not a swordsman. Peter made three mistakes at least. First of all, he fought the wrong enemy. Malchus wasn't the enemy. You know, we live in a culture so against Jesus Christ, against truth. We are in an increasingly 
post-Christian culture, that means increasingly uh, the world we're living in, the nation we're living in, does not view the world from an eternal point of view as it once did. That's all changed. And so what we do, however, though, we make people our enemies. And people, friends, are not our enemies. There is one enemy, the evil one himself, Satan, who's the prince of this world, the prince of darkness. Ephesians 6.12 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan is always the enemy. Peter also used the wrong weapon. Jesus said, put your sword away. 2 Corinthians 10 says, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We fight lies of Satan with the love of God that comes through Jesus Christ. It's a a kind of love the world doesn't know about. Peter hadn't yet recognized that on this night. Fifty days after Jesus rose from the dead, Peter would stand before a host of Jews on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and he would deliver a greater sword, the sword, the Word of God. And as he did, as he used that sword, that sword penetrated to hearts and minds. And the Bible says in Acts 2.37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. That is the gospel. When they heard the gospel, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And 3,000 people were baptized into Jesus Christ that day. It's the best sword. It always is. He had the wrong attitude as well. He was angry. That's how he was responding and angry. Put it away, Jesus said. Jesus has so many words of saying, I'm about to do something, Peter. You don't understand it all. Don't mess it up. It's so easy for us to live like Peter, isn't it? Do you get angry when you listen to the news? Get angry when you read the paper? I, 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 have, uh, you know, I, I have Yahoo Mail, and I said recently, I'm going to have to change my... Uh, I'm going to have to change my email because uh, it just, I get so angry when I read Yahoo every day at, at all that's there. It's easy to get angry. It's easy to live this seething kind of boil. I have this rage that's just waiting to be unleashed. Friends, we are God's people, and we have to stop slinging our swords at the world. That is not going to do anything to win them to Jesus Christ. When Jesus was ready to battle Satan, what did he do? He got on his knees and he poured himself out. That's how he got ready to love the world to this degree. It was this kind of love that caused him to say, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. And friends, to be transformed by Jesus is to have that mindset and that heart. To be so moved by Jesus that that we learn self-control and patience and we prepare for a, a battle with the enemy of God himself, Satan himself, and we do so by arming ourselves with the kindness and the mercy of God. There is too much sword swinging on Facebook and on Instagram and YouTube and on news sites, and if you can't handle that, then turn it off and shut it down. Sharp tongues will not win the world. So stop slashing away if that's you. And then there's Malchus, again, not identified by our passage, but the other gospel writers. 
um, who is challenged by the sheer brilliance of Jesus Christ. Others, too, in the scene that night, there was a mixture of Romans and Jews together that came that night to arrest Jesus. We refer to John's account. I like what John offers in his account of the same scene because the mob comes to the garden to arrest Jesus, and he asks, who are you looking for? And their response is, Jesus of Nazareth. And John says, I am he. If you look at the John text, that's what it says, I am he. But that's not the original text. The original text says, Jesus simply said, I am. And in that moment, he was declaring his deity. As he, as he had every other time in the Gospel of John when he used the term, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. You are the branches. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. Every one of those times, he was claiming authority and deity and, and unity with his Father, Father in heaven. Now, the Bible then says in John's account that when Jesus said, I am, it would have been Malchus and the others, drew back and they fell to the ground. Have you always found that a bit of a mystery? I don't know how to answer it except for this, that just for a brief moment perhaps, what Jesus was doing when he said, I am, is he, he just was pulling back the veil just a bit and revealing his majesty and his glory so much so that they could not stand. Malchus was struck as well as the others. The most powerfully weak person in history was speaking at this moment. And in this moment of weakness, Jesus flexed, and it was all too much. He was exerting his strength, his power, and he was becoming utterly and completely vulnerable. The same as the creator of the universe becoming a baby in Bethlehem, so vulnerable and demanding even that somebody else change his diapers. It's the same one who was asleep in the boat in the midst of a storm. The disciples frightened for their lives, and he awakens, and with a mere move of his hand, and a brief word, peace be still, the waves stop, and he commands the calm. This is the same one in the garden whose glory was revealed to Malchus and the others. But that's not all. The brilliance of Christ is seen when Peter reacts, slashes away, misses his neck, and gets Malchus's ear. And imagine what Malchus is thinking at that time. He, he grabs his head, maybe falls to his knees. I'm disfigured. What's going to happen? He puts his hand, he sees the blood on his hand. And then this one he comes to arrest touches the side of his head and restores his ear. Now, I've said before, I can be a really nice guy if I want to. And I may have healed Malchus, but I would have put his ear right in the middle of his forehead <laughs> because I could. But not Jesus. No. Don't you think you can treat your enemies better than you do? The brilliance of Christ revealed. 
Some say that because John, he writes later in the first century than the other three gospel writers, that he names Malchus simply because he became part of the followers of Jesus in the first century. I like that idea, don't you? I'm thankful for that. We've all, we've all been wounded by our own wrong decisions and sinfulness, our wandering. We've all been wounded. We brought it on ourselves. We've been wrong in our assessments sometimes, and yet we've been touched by the Savior of the world, and life's never been the same. And friends, we are the hands of Jesus, and we offer the same healing touch to people in His name to heal a broken world. I hope you live like that every day. And then we have another group that you won't really notice when you first casually read the text, but they're there nearby, the angels themselves. If, if we were to go around the room and ask about the miracle that never happened, what would, what would you say? Andrew Luck's shoulder being healed? The Democrats and the Republicans agreeing on anything? Or if you thought about Jesus' life, maybe you would think about the stones that he refused to turn to bread or refusing to jump from the temple so the angels could catch him, keep him safe. Perhaps the greatest miracle that never happened, the one that's most influential for us all, is when he refused to call angels to rescue him from this hour of darkness. What a moment. It's sad that we view angels in such wrongful ways. We, we have them in our houses or in cards we send as little pudgy babies. Remember the 60s song, Cupid, draw back your bow. <laughs> we like that little thought, don't we? No. The Scripture most often portrays angels as mighty warriors armed for battle. Their first appearance is in the Garden of Eden itself. They are put there after Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They have flaming swords in their hands, guarding the way to the tree of life so we would not dare eat from the tree of the, the fruit of that tree and thus live in a sinning state forever and ever. He didn't want that to happen, and so he guarded Adam and Eve from going back to that tree. It was an act of grace and mercy. And since then, angels have been involved in so many ways in carrying out the plan of God, even today in ways that I'm sure none of us understand in this battle that is waged all around us all the time. Jesus says here, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels? Now, a legion, a Roman legion, is 6,000 soldiers. So you multiply that and you get 72,000 angels, Jesus said. Don't you know I could call 72,000 angels? What a picture. They are trained. They're warriors. Now if, I mean, what kind of damage do you think 72,000 angels, legions of angels, 72,000 angels could do? You know, I don't, don't you know, I could, he says, don't you call, no, I could call down 12, 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000. We get a glimpse in the Old Testament when Sennacherib, the Assyrian 
governor is surrounding, the king is surrounding Jerusalem, besieging the city of Jerusalem, and King Hezekiah is scared to death. And this is what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 19, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And then the text goes on to say this, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were all dead, they were all dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Now do your angel math. If one angel can take down 180,000 men, 72 legions, 12 legions can take down 13.4 billion people. That's what Jesus had at his disposal that night. Imagine the angels on tiptoes looking down. How dare you treat God's Son that way? Say the word, Jesus, and we'll be there. It's the greatest miracle that never happened. Instead, we have Jesus kneeling. Abba, Father, Daddy. We aren't always delivered from the pain upon us. We're not supposed to grovel in it. We're to find joy in it. Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Now, when Dr. Luke writes, of course, he's the only gospel writer that points out something most interesting, that when Jesus was praying and he was kneeling, he prayed with such intensity that blood was mingled with his sweat. What an interesting condition. Perhaps the most hated king in French history was King Charles IX. In 1572, he ordered the death, the slaying of 10,000 French Protestants. And the stress of his guilt drove him crazy. And he died at age 23 from a condition called hermitidrosis. It's when your sweat is mixed with blood because of the intensity. And what I want to suggest to you, that Jesus was experiencing a kind of death right here in the garden. Perhaps this is when he could start crying out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Now, he would never gotten to this place had he not been kneeling in anguish first and also experiencing hermeditrosis, a medical condition from which most people die who experience it. This is how close to death he was in the garden. In fact, when he rose up from kneeling in prayer before his father, though the words would not yet be spoken, in essence, he was saying, it is finished. He was resolved. And I want you to know that because he got up from his knees and faced what he did, no matter what you're facing, you can get up and face what you have to face. No matter what form it comes in, it all depends on one thing. Can you, in kneeling before the Father, say, not my will, but yours be done? And so as we remember him today, let's be thankful people together. 
that our Lord was willing to go to this extent, that he could have called all these thousands and thousands and billions of angels to rescue him. He was worthy of that. But instead, he chose to die for you and me that we may have life. What amazing grace. Let's sing.